Here's something that we all know. Religion is an incredibly powerful thing. Because it's so powerful, as we have witnessed in our world, it can also be very dangerous. One of the reasons that it's so powerful and so dangerous is that it is frequently fueled by superstition and it's fueled by fear. But perhaps what makes it so powerful is that it's anchored in our conscience. And thanks to little Jiminy Cricket, our conscience drives our behavior. Our conscience can be connected to truth, but it can also be connected to error. And it can make you should a lot. You can go through your life believing I should, I should, I should. Our consciences determine religious reality, whether they reflect reality or not. You've got to think about that for a moment. Let that sink in for a second. Our conscience drives our religious act, uh, the religious reality, whether or not that's actual reality. So our consciences in North America, they have been um, shaped by a version of Christianity. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you don't believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you don't consider yourself spiritual or religious, whatever. Um, you're still part of a, a worldview that has been created here, and it's a combination of what Jesus actually taught and it's connected to this thing that I'm calling today the temple model. So whoever controls your conscience controls your behavior. So I want to try and help us separate what Jesus actually did and said, the movement that he began, from what has been historically identified as the temple model. To do that, we're going to have to figure out what is the temple model. And it's not temple as in specific to Jewish culture, although it includes that. The temple model is essentially a template. It's a way to make a religion if you wanted to design your own. And it goes back. It's not just recent. It goes back. It's the Romans. It was the Greeks. It was the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. It exists still in our world where we have those mud hut regions of the world and they have witch doctors. And it, it still exists in first world countries to think that they understand all that's going on. It looks a lot like this. Sacred places. Sacred texts, oracles, inscriptions, holy books, sacred men. It seems like it's always men and sincere, and sincere followers. And you might call them superstitious followers. You might call them scared followers. But this is the way the temple model looks. This is the system, the structure that's set up in our world and you know, in our time and throughout the world. There's always a group of people who is dependent upon the words and the teachings of a certain group of men to understand where they stand with God. These men stand at the gates. They, they stand at the gates of heaven and hell and they determine who goes where. And, when, and our consciences are fine-tuned to that teaching. This is what we um, live with in so much of the world. But the great news for us is that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he launched something that was brand new. It was not Judaism 2.0. It was not 3.0. It was not a knockoff or a spin-off of the Jewish religion. It was not a version of something that had existed anywhere before. When Jesus came, he brought forth something that was entirely new. The temple model is always, always geographically specific. Every nation had their own version of the temple. And every nation had their own version of what looked an awful lot like their neighbor's 
religion. Change the names. Change the terms. Same basic system. And Jesus said that when he came, he came to launch something that was for all people, for all nations, for all time. And in that, he launched the new covenant between God and humanity. A new command. If you're in a temple system, the temple system has lots and lots and lots of laws. This is what you have to do. This is when you have to do it. This is the way you have to do it. And Jesus said, I want to give you one command. Show that you love God through loving others well. And this one command is going to be the filter through which you view all other commands. The one command is going to serve for you as a new ethic through which you make all your decisions. When you're not sure what to do, you ask, what does love require of you? And as he did that, he launched a new movement. I will establish a new ecclesia, a new gathering. And unfortunately, instead of the word simply being translated, a gathering, an assembly, a congregation, a German word got stuck into our English text. A German word that meant house of the Lord. And that has tricked people up for generations. That word is kirch or church. But Jesus didn't come to establish a place. That's not what he was trying to do. To the contrary, Jesus came to establish a brand new movement of people, not a sitting still, a movement of people that was for all people, for all ethnic groups, for all nations, for all generations, forever and forever and forever. A movement where love would replace law-keeping, where self-sacrifice would now replace animal sacrifice, where the vertical relationship would be measured by the integrity of the horizontal relationship. Jesus would say to his followers, if you are at the temple and you remember that you've got something against one of your brothers, God can wait. Leave. Go. Fix things up with your brother. Then come back. That was unheard of. That was something brand new. No one did it like that. No one talked like that. And the Apostle Paul came after Jesus and he was a product of the temple system. He was a Pharisee, which is a good law-keeping guy. But he wasn't just a good Pharisee. He was a great Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Phariseeism. He was the Phariseeist that there was. And he steps onto the pages of history using his full mind, his full intelligence, all that he had learned. Someone committed to identifying and recognizing how this Jesus movement was not like this other thing that we've been, that they, that we've been doing. It was not like the temple. And it was deeply different. And Paul picked those differences out and he noticed them. And because of those differences, he wanted to stamp the whole thing out. And on the way to Damascus, Paul had a moment. He had a moment where he met up. He met up with the instigator, the starter of this whole new movement. He met with Jesus Christ himself and the Apostle Paul. It was changed. And he became a convert to Christianity. He became a key spokesperson for Christianity. And he knew more than anybody else that you dare not mix the old with the new. Because a little bit of temple model thinking mixed with this new ecclesia thing, this new Jesus movement, would have the potential to ruin the whole thing. 
And in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians are people who lived in a Roman province called Galatia. He wrote to them what would have been unthinkable in that time, certainly to the Jewish culture. In terms of the implications, what he said, it was so deep-reaching. This is what he said to them in Galatians chapter 5. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This guy was a Jewish scholar. He was an upper-level Jewish elite scholar, someone who had memorized the Torah. The Torah is quite often used as another word for the law. But when we say the law, we don't mean the law. We mean the laws. All of them. He knew them. And he says the only thing, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And particularly love that was expressed through other people. That was new. It was groundbreaking. It was revolutionary. And to a people who had grown up knowing the essentialness of going to the temple, whether it was the Jewish temple or a pagan temple, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples? And all the people at the time just saying, Wait a second, that makes no sense at all. You're talking gibberish. A temple is a place I go. That's what I've always done. That's what we've always done. We go there. And he says that's the old way of thinking. That is the temple model. But Jesus has gone and done something entirely new. You, you are as sacred as any piece of dirt that you will ever put your foot on. You will never go anywhere more sacred than you are. You are a portable, traveling temple. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? And they're going like, wait, 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 hold on a second here. The Spirit of God, that ind- he indwells the Holy of Holies in the temple. Paul says again, that's the old way. The new covenant has come. There's a new understanding. The old is past. The new is here. You, you are indwelt by the very same Spirit of God that indwells the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. Not just for you, though. That man to your right and that woman to your left, the slave in front of you and the slave owner that's behind you, That child running towards you or the king sitting on his throne over there. They too, all of them, sacred in the eyes of God. Today that's still a little bit tricky to get your head around. That kind of a concept is is very hard to to figure out what do I do with that. But back then, back then this was just mind-boggling. Stop, say that again. What do you mean? And what did they mean? What did it look like? Well, the church got off to a great start. How do we know that? Because people talk. They always talk. And there are many historical documents that tell us what was going on in those days and in the surrounding areas. And they're not Christians who are writing them. They're not even Jews who are writing them. They were pagans, people who had no interest in the system. But they noticed stuff, and they wrote it down. These Christians, they'd go out into the streets and they take the children that had been abandoned. In Roman culture, if uh, your child wasn't healthy, or maybe a girl, 
or problematic in some way, the kids would just abandon. The parents would just leave them and walk away. And the Christians would bring them in and care for them. The Christians wouldn't just take care of their own poor, but they would also take care of the poor Gentiles and the poor pagans. The pagan, Greek, Roman way of thinking, their mindset, they goes, I just can't do the math on what you're saying here. Why? Why would you do that? Why? Why do they love? Why do they care for people, their people and outsiders? Why? And the Christians began to gain traction. They had no Bible. The Gentile Christians didn't even have the Old Testament. All they had were stories of Jesus. And then about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul's letters began to circulate around through the churches. But they only had copies, and, and they had this one, but they didn't have that one. There's no central document. They just had extraordinary faith that was fueled by the resurrection of Jesus and love one another. If you forget everything else, you are a portable temple gathering with other portable temples and you put the person next to you ahead of yourself. When in doubt, offer love. Now that's a radical new way of church programming. Where is the programmatic strategy in that? People say, but, but, but when would we do that? But, but where? How would it work out? Wherever you are, in whatever way God leads you. But you know what's easier? Why don't you just tell me what to do? Tell me when to come and I can show up for that. Because if you don't tell me, I'm going to have to trust God. And I'm going to have to listen to God. Yes. Exactly. Then to cement this system in history, A.D. 70, the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple is destroyed. It's flattened. Ancient Judaism came to an end. The world as they had known it ceased to exist. This was very much the end times. And it was like God had decided to physically punctuate that place in history. The temple model is no more. Its purposes have been served. The purpose of the temple was to, to point to the Messiah, to point towards Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the entire law can be summed up in two rules. Love God and demonstrate your love for God by your love for other people. People who had nothing in common found that in Christ, together, they had everything in common. But wait, there's still more. Another extraordinary thing happened. October the 28th, the year 312, Emperor Constantine was on his way to do battle with his co-emperor, Maxentius, to decide who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. Maybe you learned this story in school. Maybe you can remember this in history class. But history tells us that on his way, in the middle of the day, Constantine stops and he has a vision. He has a vision of a cross in the sky just beyond the sun. And some say that he heard a voice, and some say that he just read an inscription. But whether he, he heard it or he read it, he read this. In this sign, conquer. And so he stopped. He stopped the whole procession. And he painted crosses on some of the shields of some of his soldiers. 
And they got back up and they went into battle. And they go into battle and they are victorious. And the Christians hailed him as the conqueror. And suddenly his faith expanded and he began to consider the one true God of the Christians. And suddenly Christianity began to gain new status in the kingdom. In this victory celebration, the cross, it was shown in all the artwork of the time. The cross that's there, no longer a symbol of crucifixion in general. Now the cross became a symbol of the crucifixion of Jesus. And what was birthed, even though the phrase wasn't used later on until the 12th or the 13th century, it's what we now know as the Holy Roman Empire. And the problem, of course, with this is that it was far more Roman and far more empire than it ever was holy. But a year later, Constantine legalized Christianity. And when he did that, he poured so much money into the church. He elevated the status of the bishops and the priests. He began to build churches everywhere he had heard that a martyr had died. He became a collector of relics. And everything he did was about raising and elevating the status of Christianity. He built churches. And churches didn't have to pay taxes. So guess what? That's right. People wanted to take advantage of that. So all the rich people began to dedicate their properties or their manors, their estates to God so that they didn't have to pay any tax. And the rich got richer. And the rich people increasingly became Christians because it paid to follow Jesus under the leadership of Constantine. He goes on, he bans crucifixion. He gave rights to children. He even donated money to families who would be willing to take in orphans. And seemingly overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. And the world shifted. And the problem was, and it was no one's intent, it was, there was no great plan that had this. The problem was, suddenly, Christianity became inseparable from empire. That's just... They go together. And the church leaders created their own version of the temple model with some new Christian seasoning added. Now there were new sacred places. And there would be a whole group of sacred people, mostly men, and that began to intentionally collect all the Christian texts and they bind them together and then they chain them to the altar. And now they would determine what was taught and what wasn't taught. And how that text should be interpreted. This is no better understood than this moment in history called the Arian Controversy. It's a theological controversy. And honestly, the only reason I bring it up and I want to tell you about it is because of the point that it led to in the change in history. The Arian Controversy was over one word. And that word was begotten. And it deals with the question of whether or not Jesus was born God or whether or not he became God after he was born. It, it's a huge deal in the 4th century. For us, we don't think about it in this kind of way. And it seems like nitpicking to some people. And you go, in the 4th century, this is a huge deal. And there was a, a church leader in Alexandria. His name was Arius. And he believed that Jesus' divinity was actually conferred to him as an adult. As some sort of uh, reward for his faithfulness to God. But most of the church leaders, including a guy, especially a guy named Athanasius, he led the charge against Arius. And he said, no, Jesus was born divine. So Constantine didn't want to have a division in this new holy empire. So he wanted to fix it. 
So he called a council meeting, and he hosted it. He paid for the whole thing, which really helps anyone who's there to be kind and polite to the emperor. Athanasius gets there, and he's first on. He, he goes to Constantine. Now remember, Constantine's not a theologian, right? He's a very recent convert, and he's a king. He did everything a king would do. Everything a king does. So, so much so that he waited to be baptized. Even though he called himself a Christian, he waited to be baptized until he's on his deathbed. Just to make sure that all of his sin and all of his sinning lifestyle would be completely covered by this baptism right at the end of his life. Right up to the very last minute. Because he was always more of a Roman emperor than he was a holy Roman emperor. So there's this great debate. And they go back and forth and they're talking and the resolution comes out. And you've probably heard about this resolution because we call it something now. We call the resolution that they wrote at this conference the Nicene Creed. And Athanasius, who argued persuasively that Jesus was born divine, he won the debate. And after the debate, people didn't leave good friends. They didn't leave saying, hey, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe. No. Because Christianity had a new friend. And that new friend made this issue now a political issue. And not just a political issue, it made it a financial issue. Which, as we all understand very clearly, that makes it a big issue. So Emperor Constantine, who once again was not a theologian, put out this edict. Let me settle the matter for the country. This explains so much of what we continue to experience even in today's world. We see the effects of this ongoing. This is the major change in history. This is what he wrote. This is part of it. And I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. So that changed things. That had never been said before. There had never been any sort of implication of anything like that before. Now, theological division was heresy. And heresy became punishable by death. Suddenly, believing the wrong thing became a crime. And then it happened. In Christianity, what you believed trumped how you behave. Christianity almost became immediately creedal, which means that it would follow the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and other creeds, statements that are, honestly, these things are fantastic. They're, they're brilliant. They're intricate. They're theologically intense. They're helpful, but lacking. The creeds have no mention of love. They also have no information about what Jesus taught, just who he was. The creeds had no requisite behaviors attached to them. They were great in orthodoxy. This is what we believe. But they were completely overlooking orthopraxy. This is how we behave. This is how we practice. They were all love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But they completely removed the and love your neighbor as yourself part. That element that Jesus had added in specifically to make sure the Pharisees got it. Specifically to make sure that we got it. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
You could sign the creed and basically do anything you wanted. There was a reason that the creeds were this way, because all creeds were signed off on by the emperor. And emperors are known for bad behavior. All right? So the church leaders were being very, very conscious about who has to sign off on this thing. They're being fueled and funded by the emperor. So they have to make sure that what they write can be signed off by him. And that's not going to implicate him in too many ways. So now we have Christians who are arresting Christians for believing the wrong things. And there it was. It just seemed to happen. At just a moment in history, there was the church version, the Christian version of the temple model. Sacred men became the gatekeepers once again of heaven and hell. And they did it through withholding communion, withholding baptism. They did it with the threat of excommunication. And then the Pope, the archbishops, the bishops, and the priests, they were the new power. And, and the kings and the lords and the landowners, now they feared the Pope and the priests and the bishops. And then in the 11th century, like I'm sure you remember this, this is the first successful crusade was launched by Pope Urban II. And he sent this crusade out with that all crusaders who would participate would be immediately forgiven. He promised the full remission of sin, past, present, future. You go on crusade and you're forgiven for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you're about to do. And so these landowners and these knights, these wealthy people, they already had a bucket load of sin that they were nervous about. And they thought, wouldn't it be great to be forgiven? So let's go. And they charged off onto the first crusade. And because they knew that they would be forgiven for what they had done, what they were doing, and what they would do, they raped and pillaged their way all the way to Constantinople. And after getting to Constantinople, all the way to the Holy Land. Because after all, their sins were forgiven. And something happened as they were on this. And something happened in Europe at the time. It occurred to them, hey, if we have permission to kill those who inhabit the holy sacred land in Jerusalem, why not murder those who actually are responsible for the death of our Lord? So then Jewish men and Jewish women and Jewish children were murdered throughout Europe. The spirit of anti-Semitism went to a level that had never before been seen in the world. Wealth simply collected as you went by on their way to do the will of God. Because after all, the Pope told them, God wills it. And they cried as they went into battle, God wills it. And the temple model was back and in full force. This was just a new Christian remix version. Sacred places, sacred men who control the sacred texts because no one had access to the Bible. It would only be interpreted the way they thought it should be interpreted. And all of a sudden, the movement that was supposed to be fueled by love for one another almost came to a screeching halt. Except there appeared a remnant in the monastic movement that started up. And those people understood and remembered what the Jesus movement was really all about. The next big date in our history, our story that goes along is 1517. And that's the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and others were trying to abandon the church. They weren't trying to abandon the church. They were just trying to reform the church. And that's why it's called the Reformation. 
But those with power, power within the church, they, they, they saw that he was calling into question sacred things and protesting against the leadership of the church. And that's why they became labeled as protesters or Protestants. Martin Luther, he's a Greek scholar, and he understood that none of what the church now stands for can be found anywhere in the Gospels. Certainly their version of salvation can't be found in the Gospels. Certainly the idea that a pope or a bishop controls who goes to purgatory and how long they stay there, none of that can be found in the Gospels. So they began to try and reform the church. Consequently, Martin Luther was excommunicated. But you know what? He didn't care because he didn't think the Pope had any authority to do that anyways. Throughout the Reformation, there grew up these statements that are called solas. They, they, they grew up. There was a number of them. But one of the most famous was sola fide, by faith alone. This became a hallmark of Protestant, Protestantism. We believe that salvation is not by works, but by faith in Jesus alone. And at this same period in time, period in time the printing press has, has picked up, and they're creating new things to print and to hand out. And so these guys went hard in trying to get the scriptures uh, printed and translated in a language other than Latin, languages of the people. And eventually it was translated into English by William Tyndale. And for his trouble, he was executed just for trying to make the Bible understandable to people in their own language. Martin Luther also, he met with great resistance as he was doing this, as he was trying to put the Bible into German. He was hunted down like a criminal for trying to make the Bible available for average people. Another famous sola that came up in the Reformation, linked to that, it's sola scriptura, scripture alone. The scripture, not the church, is the ultimate authority for humanity. That's why they were so adamant about making copies of Scripture and getting them into the hands of people. This was taken as a threat to the church because if everyone had the Scripture and they began to not take the church and the traditions of the church seriously, large amounts of power would be lost. One of the ways that was sort of summarizing what was going on, this is what Martin Luther said. He said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Without meaning to, without understanding where this would go, suddenly in the hands of the Protestant church leaders, the scriptures became the very same thing that papal authority was before. It became a weapon. The reformers were armed, armed with the scriptures, and they did exactly what the church had done before. Consequently, right after that, the Reformation split into three, six, a dozen, a dozen dozen, and now into more than a thousand different Protestant denominations all over the world. And you know what divides them? Is it because someone loves better than someone else? No. It's always an interpretation of a text. Now we have more sacred places. New sacred men holding sacred texts, telling everyone how to live their lives. Specifically, what could grant them entrance into heaven and keep them out of hell. And Protestants have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. 
And the tragedy in all of this, in country after country, and in church after church, the same problem. Love lost. We didn't do it. We just keep making up new versions of the temple model. And we keep sprinkling Jesus on the top or in different places. Now, honestly, that's a really, really fast trip. Maybe it didn't feel fast to you, but that is a fast trip through hundreds and hundreds of years. But at some point along that path, you got to figure that Jesus was standing at the edge of heaven, you know, sort of leaning on the rail and looking down, maybe standing there with the Apostle Paul, and they're both shaking their heads, and they're going, how did they do that? How did they get that from what, we, from what I said? And Jesus goes, yeah, I washed their feet, and then I said, go and do likewise. How did that get misread? And before Jesus left, he looked him in the eyes, and he said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So how in the world did it come to this? And then Paul says to Jesus, yeah, yeah, I know, I wrote mine down. I had copies made. I sent them around. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then Peter walks up and he goes, I know, guys, seriously, after all this, after this whole thing, they built a temple on top of my tomb. A temple for Pete's sake. You see what I just did there? Right? Peter said, for Pete's sake. And it was for Peter's sake that they built a temple on his tomb. And he wrote in 1 Peter 1, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. How could anything get so messed up when it was so clear? So clear, how did it become complicated? How could something that was set to be the filter for the all decisions, something that's so pure, something that was so clear, something that's so grassroots, so average folk, something that was so one another oriented become so temple? And the reason? There's a little temple model in all of us. Our consciences have been shaped by it. What you fear, what you see as sin, what you think God condemns has been taught to us in such a way that our conscience has been shaped by it. And consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold the church and us back. Have you ever wondered and I know that most of us have because I've been asked these questions innumerable times. Have you ever wondered how close you can get to sin without actually sinning? That's how temple model people think. Because you treat God like he's stupid. Dear God, please help me. I want to know how close I can get to sin but not get any of your wrath stuff. No, I'm not trying to get close to you. I'm trying to get close to sin. Will you please help me? We do this regularly. Have you ever felt guiltier about missing church than you did about the way that you treated people at work? Which one's more important? Attendance or attitude? If you're wound up like that, temple model thinking, when you failed morally, 
as most of us have in some capacity, whatever way, however you want to define moral failure, were you more concerned with what God would do to you rather than you were about the people involved directly or indirectly? If you were, that's temple thinking. In the temple model, the worshiper is always more concerned about themselves than other people. Think about this one. Do other people's sins elicit feelings of superiority in you or compassion? Do others' failures or their, their blind spots, their sins, do they make you feel morally superior instead of breaking your heart? Is there any of that in you? I know there's lots of that in me. That's temple model pollution. That's the old trying to mix with the new. That little bit has the potential to pollute the entire thing. Do your beliefs and theology ever get in the way of your love? Imagine if we were free from those bindings. Imagine a world where every single believer in Jesus got up every single morning with the truth that God is fine with me. Now I must figure out how to be fine with other people so that I can help them be fine with my Father in heaven. Much of what fuels our temple model thinking is our failure to embrace the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus died for you. This is theology. But when it cracks through and it gets into your heart and not just your mind, you'll recognize in that same statement that Jesus is for you. When you, when you get that the, the Jesus and, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are for you, that there's nothing that puts you outside of their love, that, that grace has no measure, that grace has no limit. Once you settle that, once it gets into your heart, then you can start to read and understand Scripture. Until that place, you're always going to be misled. Jesus said, love God. And you demonstrate your love for God by loving others. When in doubt, do what love requires of you because all the law and all the prophets hang on those two. Get that? You will be made brand new and set free because it was for freedom that Christ came. I challenge you. How are you going to respond to God today? I get it. Thanks. Or is there something that you can actually put into place? On your communication card, which is on the inside of the, your uh, worship folder, if you've got one of those, the bulletin, you can rip that section off. And there's a place there for uh, contact information. If you're visiting with us, you can give us that information. Let us acknowledge that you were here, and uh, we can have a great old time connecting. But there's a line on the back side that says, um, I'd like more information about it. I'd like these other things. But there's a line there that says, I want to respond to God by. And then there's some blank lines. And I challenge you, tear it off, fill it out, put your response to God in the offering box. This is part of the offering that we give to God. God, I have heard from you today. Because of what I have heard, I will respond in this way. How is the Spirit speaking to you? Kind Father, thank you. Thank you for a love story that starred me. You, you came 
for me. You, you, you came to save me. You came to save my friends that are here. You came to save the, the people who are outside here and have walked by and have no interest in coming in. Each of these people you love and you treat as holy and important, they are special and significant. So many times I get caught up in rules, God, and, and, I, and I stop thinking about what you would have me to do and I, and I try to decide what the right thing is to do. And, and I get to the conclusion sometimes that the right thing is to turn my back. Speak to me. That you might speak through me in this kind of format, but in a, in a real life living kind of format as well. Help us to engage our world, the people we know and the people we don't know. Whoever we come across, to engage them with this love. This one anothering kind of love that shows that I love you because I love what you love. Guide us forward, we pray, in a spirit of submission and courage and obedience. Don't give up on us. <laughs> Help us to move forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord keeps you from all harm. Who watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today. It's better when you're here. It really is. The more we connect, the better it gets. The more we live out what we were called to live out. I'm going to send you today by telling you that it's by grace alone. Remember that.